Welcome back to another episode of Health Animated. On this podcast, we strive to make health information accessible to everyone. My name is Alex. And I'm Danielle. If you're returning to our podcast, thanks for your ongoing support. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. We hope you stick around. So today, we're going to talk about something that's been getting a bit of attention lately from the media, and that's blood clots. In fact, I was at work last week, and I had questions from people asking me if I thought it would be safe to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, because there is a rare type of blood clot that has been associated with this vaccine, and more recently, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So because there's a lot of controversy and new information coming out daily, we wanted to take a step back and look at blood clots in general. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about how they're formed, who's at risk of getting them, and what you can do to monitor for symptoms of a blood clot. We'll even talk about some medications that can increase the risk of developing blood clots. Hint, hint, one of them is the birth control pill. Then we'll discuss about this rare blood clot known as cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, also known as CVST, and share what information we know to date about its association with COVID. And just to set some expectations, what we're not going to talk about is the association of the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine with CVST and with clots. So keep in mind that information is rapidly changing and we know there's going to be more information coming out with respect to the vaccines. So we're going to wait to comment until we have a little bit more information. But for now, we want to talk to you about blood clots in general and really set the scene. So let's get started. I think it's safe to say that we all understand that clotting is important. We've all experienced our body's amazing ability to prevent us from bleeding out. So for example, when you've experienced a cut, it creates what's called a vascular injury. And any blood that kind of escapes must be rapidly converted into a gel, also known as a clot, to plug the hole and prevent you from bleeding excessively. Yes. So our blood's plasma contains proteins, and these proteins form what's called a clotting cascade. So this cascade is a series of steps that together will end up in clot formation. So when a clot forms as a result of a cut or an injury, that's a totally normal reaction. But sometimes there's too much of a good thing. And as we know, that's usually not good, right? So when clots form, without a cut or an injury, that's known as a pathologic condition. And that really shouldn't be happening because when you've got clots forming when they shouldn't, it can actually prevent blood from getting to the organs because it obstructs the vessels. And that can be dangerous. So just to give you a little bit of history, because we all can appreciate a little bit of medical history, over 100 years ago, there was a German physician called Rudolf Virchow, and he was actually one of the most prominent physicians in the 19th century. Uh, fun fact, he was actually the person that emphasized that diseases actually came from the individual cells and not necessarily from the organs or tissues. So this was a huge leap for uh, medical understanding. Wow. So in present time, contemporary times, uh, typically when we hear the word Virchow, we think of something else. Yeah, so when we think of Virchow, we think of our teaching back in pharmacy school, or if you're a different healthcare provider, like a doctor, medical school, or a nursing school, 
really almost every school you would learn about Virchow's triad. So Virchow's triad examines three main factors that contribute to pathologic clot formation. So this triad is classically represented as a triangle. So you should think about a little triangle in your head when you're thinking about this. So the first thing is vascular wall injury. So that means your blood vessel wall can become injured. And this can be a result of trauma. So for example, if you cut yourself, if you have some kind of um, reason to have a punctured blood vessel, or if you get plaque buildup, you know, due to a family history of high cholesterol or potentially dietary factors. So just different things that can cause cholesterol to build up. So that's the first one. So those kind of all fall under vascular wall injury. So the next thing is called stasis, which really means when blood is not flowing like it should be. So one of these factors could be immobility, so you're not moving around very much. And another factor is uh, venous insufficiency, which is where you can get pooling of the blood in the veins of your legs and it can have trouble getting back up to the heart. A symptom of this could be something like varicose veins. And the third factor of Virchow's triad is a hypercoagulable state. What this means is that you're more prone to clotting. So there are certain things that are within our control that from a clotting perspective, and there's certain things that we don't really have control over. So something that's semi in our control are the drugs that we take. So drugs that contain estrogen, such as hormone replacement therapy or oral contraceptives, can actually increase your risk of clotting. And the reason for that is because estrogen increases the levels of coagulation factors and decreases the levels of anticoagulant proteins. Another class of drugs that can increase the hypercoagulability of people is actually cancer therapies. So there's a select number of cancer therapies that can actually make a person more hypercoagulable. So another thing that can actually increase your risk of clotting is pregnancy. Something called deep vein thrombosis, which is where a clot forms in the veins of the leg, can actually impact one out of a thousand pregnancies. And the reason for this, there are just a number of physiologic changes that are happening in the body during pregnancy that can lead us to be more hypercoagulable and that can affect blood flow. The next risk factor uh, that can increase the risk of hypercoagulability or increase the risk of clots is infection. And the reason uh, associated with that is inflammation and our clotting cascade going a little bit wonky. Other things that can actually impact the clotting cascade as well is cancer. People with cancer have an increased risk of clots, and that's a very well-known risk factor for clotting. So there is a class of genetic clotting disorders called thrombophilias that can also increase the risk of a person clotting. There's a lot of reasons. So if we go back to that triad or triangle, we've got vascular injury, stasis, where the blood's not flowing as it should, and then hypercoagulable state. So Alex, do you want to take us through birth control a little bit more? Because I feel like that is a risk factor that's been coming up more and more in the media, especially with respect to CVST. Uh, If you're someone who's thinking about taking birth control pills, there are a subset of people who aren't recommended or contraindicated to taking these pills. Yep. So people that shouldn't be taking birth control pills. So number one, 
if you've just had a baby and it's been uh, six weeks or less, not recommended to be on birth control pill. Number two, this one seems pretty obvious. If you've had a history of a blood clot, not a good idea to be on birth control pill because it can increase your risk. Number three, if you've had what's called ischemic heart disease, so that can encompass things like if you've had a heart attack in the past. Number four, again, going back to history, if you've had the uh, unfortunate event of a stroke, you are not recommended to take this pill. Number five, if you have any sort of what we call complicated valvular heart disease. So I know this sounds like a lot of nonsense, but if I give you some examples, that help to put things into perspective. So an example of this would be atrial fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is a condition where your heart is beating irregularly. In this particular example, atrial fibrillation itself can increase your risk of stroke. Last but not least, if you're someone that experiences a migraine headache, specifically with association of aura, it's like this visual warning sign that your body has before you get a migraine. So some people, it can appear like flashes of light. Um, other people can experience like halo effects. But it is usually what kind of uh, precedes a migraine headache for people. This one is really interesting. So I have a lot of friends that... Um, that I've actually informed that um, they shouldn't be taking oral contraceptives containing estrogen because of the migraine with uh, focal aura. So that is something that I think is maybe a little bit lesser known. It's something that maybe just doesn't always come up, but it should definitely be something that you let your healthcare provider know about when you're um, talking to them about um, contraceptives. Yes. So if you are someone that's on an oral contraceptive pill, uh, there are things you can do to monitor for signs or symptoms of a clot. So you know we love our acronyms. So the acronym we want to share with everyone today is called AICHS. The first letter stands for abdominal pain. So if you have pain that originates from the abdomen, that is a sign for you to go get it checked out. The C stands for chest pain. So any kind of chest pain in general is not great. So this warrants a visit to the hospital. H stands for headache. E stands for eye problems. So any sort of visual disturbances. And then S stands for sudden pain or redness in calf or thigh. So this specific area of pain in the thigh might be indicative of like a blood clot in your leg. Also known as a DVT or deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. So the rates of developing a clot on oral contraceptives that contain estrogen can range. It really depends on the type of uh, estrogen progesterone combination that you're on. So it can range from about five to seven per 10,000 women taking oral contraceptives to about nine to 12 per 10,000. But, you know, if we look at that in comparison to people not taking birth control at all, that would be, you know, two per 10,000 per year. Another important group that is predisposed to clotting would be pregnant women. So if we look at pregnancy, the rates of clot in pregnancy can actually range to about 5 to 20 per 10,000 or 
as high as 40 to 65 per 10,000 in the postpartum time. So that is after giving birth. So why, is, why are women more at risk of clots during pregnancy? It really has to do with all of the physiologic changes that are going on in the body. We've already kind of gone through the rates of it, but it is important to know that, that the risk of VTE actually increases by about 5 or 10 times during pregnancy and 15 to 35 times after delivery. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I always knew that carrying a baby is not an easy task. But now hearing all these numbers and, and understanding like the additional risks associated with pregnancy, especially with blood clots, I'm like, hats off to everyone out there. Yes. So depending on where the clot originates from, or where it ends up traveling to, it may have a different name or presentation. So just to give you a few examples, if the clot is located in your legs, it's called deep vein thrombosis. If it's located in your lungs or travels to your lungs, it's called a pulmonary embolism. So if the clot happens to develop in your coronary arteries, which are the arteries that provide blood to your heart, that can lead to a heart attack. And then finally, if a clot travels all the way to your brain, that can lead to what's called a stroke. So... This brings us to talking about stroke now, because as we're all aware, stroke is a very hot topic right now. And one type of stroke in particular is CVST. Okay, so I promise we're going to get to CVST momentarily. But before we get there, I think it's important just to talk about regular strokes. So CVST is a rare type of stroke. But the stroke that most of us are familiar with is when the arteries that supply blood to the brain become blocked off, either due to plaque buildup or due to a clot that has formed or traveled to the brain to restrict blood flow to it. So these types of strokes can cause the symptoms that we know about, which is represented by the acronym FAST, because we love acronyms. So F stands for facial drooping, A stands for arm weakness, S stands for speech difficulties, and T stands for time being of the essence. So I think we've all seen really great commercials on TV that kind of go through the classic presentation of stroke. So CVST is also a type of stroke, but it is not your classic form of stroke. It's really a rare type of stroke, and it presents differently than the stroke that, we're, uh, that we just described. CVST stands for cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and this is when a clot can block up the veins of our brain. So Alex, what happens when the brain's venous system is blocked up? So when there is a blockage in the venous blood supply, there's really nowhere for the blood to, to drain. And so what ends up happening is you effectively start to build up pressure inside your brain. And unfortunately, if the pressure continues to increase, that may actually cause those blood vessels to burst and leading to bleeding. That's a great explanation, Alex. So really, um, essentially, uh, you've got increase in pressure in the brain and that clot formation. So as we mentioned earlier, CVST's symptoms can present a little bit differently from like the classic stroke. So for CVST, in some cases, you can get a delayed onset of symptoms because at first, when you have that blockage, depending on how big the block is, you might not have as, as many symptoms right off the bat. 
so it can be a little bit delayed. But the most common is headache. And this is due to the buildup of pressure due to the blood and cerebral spinal fluid that are building up in the brain because of that clot blocking it off. It can also lead to seizures in some cases as well. Another thing that it can cause, similar to classic stroke, is weakness of our voluntary movements. So you can feel weak. You can also get swelling of the optic nerve, so the nerve to the eyes, which can cause like double vision or visual changes or even in some cases loss of vision. Because of all of this pressure as well building up, people can also get changes in their mental state. So that can cause like confusion, uh, in some cases delirium, amnesia, or the inability to talk. So it kind of differs from our classic stroke symptoms, but one of the most important things to keep in mind is the headache presentation. Yeah, so it can present either right away. So in the medical world, we call that an acute presentation. It can also be subacute or it can be potentially delayed. So sometimes it can have an onset of seven days. So why is there such a wide range in the onset? Well, one explanation is just thinking back to the condition sort of develops. So it really just depends on the extent of the blood clot and also depends on which areas of the brain that's affected. Yeah, that's a really good point, Alex. It can take a little bit longer in some cases to present, or it can be a bit more gradual in how it um, comes on. So I wanted to take you guys through a study uh, that I think does a pretty good job of demonstrating some of the risk factors of CVST. So this was a study that was done in the Netherlands, and it was published in 2012, but they collected data from 2008 to 2010. And they looked at people in 19 different hospitals. So in these 19 different hospitals, they looked at people that were admitted with CVST. So they found 94 cases and they examined the people that experienced CVST. So those 94 cases. So they found that the incidence of CVST was 13 per million. When they broke it down a little bit further, they found that women were more than two times as likely than men to experience CVST. And that if you looked at the rates specifically of women aged 31 to 50, their rates were much higher. So it becomes 27 per 1 million compared to men, which was about 6 per 1 million aged 31 to 50. So in this study, they found that the median age of onset of CVST was 41 years old. And half of the women that were in this study were actually taking oral contraceptives. And 18% of the women in this study were actually pregnant. Wow, that was a really great find because it kind of just supports some of the risk factors that we talked about and really confirms the epidemiology of CVST. CVST is super rare. If you take a look at 1 million people, only about 2 to about 16 people will experience this condition. The other factor that is quite important is the female to male ratio. So females on average are about three times more likely to experience CVST compared to the male counterpart. Lastly, the data shows that the median age is 37 years young. So this seems to affect adults that are in the younger population. I like that you said 37 years young. 
because we're in our 30s now so yeah we're still young makes me feel good (laughs) yeah we are so as you may have guessed Risk factors is a big component in kind of determining the likelihood of experiencing CVSD. So what they found was 85% of people who had who experienced CVSD had actually one risk factor. So the risk factor could be, say, cancer, for example. And 50% of people who had CVSD had more than one risk factor, so multiple risk factors. And unfortunately, there's probably about 13%, so a very small amount of cases, that actually had no identifiable risk factors. So that was really just bad luck. So believe it or not, COVID can actually increase the risk of CVST. So a possible mechanism of that is that coagulopathy is actually a feature of COVID-19 infections. So COVID can increase a number of different biomarkers that are associated with hypercoagulability as the COVID-19 infection can actually trigger a major inflammatory state in the body. And you can get these extreme elevations in our standard coagulation studies. And this kind of supports the the thought that infection can be associated with widespread kind of prothrombotic consequences that can lead to things like different types of clots, even heart attack or stroke. So there was a study that was done in December, and it was a multi-center study that was done out of Iran, the USA, and Singapore. And they looked at patients that were hospitalized with COVID that had a diagnosis of CVST. So in these patients, their CVST was attributed to COVID if it was like the symptom that they came in with and they were COVID positive, or if it was they were COVID positive two weeks before their diagnosis with CVST. So this study looked at nine centers, as I mentioned, in Singapore, Iran, and the US, and they actually compared it to patients that were like in our pre-COVID era from a retrospective charting perspective. So They looked at patients between the years of 2012 to 2016. I don't know why those years in particular, but those are the years they chose. So in this study, they found 13 patients that developed CVST. 11 were from Iran, one was from the US, and one was from Singapore. In this study, the average age of um, patient was 50.7 years old. So, And that ranged between uh, 32 to 71 years of age. More than half, so 61%, were women that experienced this complication. And it was actually interesting because in the COVID population, there were actually less that were using oral contraceptives. So it was only 23% that were on oral contraceptives. And if we compare that to the Netherlands study where they had 52% on oral contraceptives, that's actually less. So that's interesting to note because it's people that, you know, you wouldn't typically think of having maybe as many risk factors that were experiencing it. But that being said, it was also a very small study. So just, you know, some interesting things to think of. Another thing that was kind of interesting to note was that of those 13 patients, nine of them had mild symptoms of COVID. One of them was totally asymptomatic and only one of them had severe COVID symptoms. So that's actually kind of um, a little concerning because it just goes to show that even if you're asymptomatic, you can still be experiencing these inflammatory, this inflammatory and prothrombotic state that can increase risk of clotting. So the mechanism of how COVID increases risk of clotting isn't really fully known, but it is thought to be due to this like uh, increased inflammation and prothrombotic effects. So 
there was another study actually that Alex found that was looked at CVST exclusively in the U.S. And they found that um, 75% of the cases of uh, CVST in COVID-19 patients didn't actually have any identifiable risk factors for CVST. So that is really scary because, you know, we've got now a condition. I mean, you know, infection is arguably a risk factor for CVST because we know that there's other types of infections that can cause it like meningitis, mastoiditis, sinusitis, otitis, which is an ear infection. But like, you know, COVID is also one of those other infections now that is associated with it. And 75% of the people didn't have any other risk factors. So I think now it's kind of important to maybe just go through what are your chances of getting a clot from COVID? Alex, do you want to walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. As you were saying all these things, I'm just thinking like, what the clot? <laughs> like, it kind of <laughs> just goes to show you could be someone with little to no symptoms to someone who's severe. All of that doesn't even matter. Just having the infection could increase your risk of having CVST. So I want to walk you through what are the chances of getting a clot from COVID, just to put things into perspective. So way in the beginning of our episode, we talked about the classic arterial ischemic stroke. And so that can also occur in people who have COVID-19. So that incidence was actually 1%. Um, so that's about one in 100 people who experience COVID-19. Wow, that's really high. But it can even increase further to like 1.5 out of 100. So those odds are, are pretty high from my perspective. Now, when we focus in on the rare type of stroke, the CVST that, that we've been talking about, this was actually observed to be much lower. So thank goodness. So it occurred at a percentage of 0.02%. And I did the math. It equates to 1 in 5,000. So less less common compared to the classic stroke. Um, so even though this value may seem pretty low, like 1 in 5,000, okay, that's pretty low, but it's actually 30 to 60 times higher than the rates of CVST reported in non-COVID-19 patients. So again, just to bring it back, depending on which data set you use, it can really range from, you know, some people report three to four cases per 1 million. Earlier, we talked about how the range can be as high as 15 per million. Um, so you can really appreciate the significant difference once you throw in COVID-19 infection as a predictor. Wow, that's kind of mind-blowing when you put it into that term, one in 5,000. Yeah, I mean, we all know it's important to, you know, follow all the public health orders and be safe and maintain social distancing. But after hearing this, I'm like, man, I'm going to definitely be even like 120% compliant with preventing um, uh, myself from getting COVID. Okay, so the other thing that we kind of alluded to was this idea of getting like a clot in your leg. So those are DVTs or also known as deep vein thrombosis. And if the clot in the leg dislodges and travels to your lungs, it's also known as a pulmonary embolism, or PE. So this can actually occur among COVID-19 patients as well, so no surprise. And so you might be wondering, okay, so what's the rate of that? So in a recent meta-analysis of about 28,000 patients, it showed that 14% of non-ICU patients experience these events. 
And if you were an ICU patient, that's even higher. It's at 23%. So to no one's surprise, these rates exceed those in the non-COVID-19 population. So again, as a reminder, this typically affects one per a thousand people annually. And I mean, like, I reflected on this data. I mean, one thing to kind of realize is, you know, these are... Patients that are admitted to hospital. Exactly, I was going to say. So these are probably already patients who are quite ill because otherwise you wouldn't need to go to a hospital. Um, so, you know, that's something to just kind of think about as well. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we've kind of painted a pretty grim picture, <laughs> I think, of sorts of um, CVST, we want to walk you through the treatment and how what the goals of care are. So obviously, if you have a clot, the first thing that we want to do to treat this is to restore blood flow. Um, You also want to prevent the clot from getting bigger or extending. And if there is an underlying condition that makes you more at risk of clot, we want to try to treat that underlying condition. So if it's an infection, you treat the infection. If it's cancer, you treat the cancer. If you're on birth control, you are coming off birth control. So as these kind of things will prevent the recurrence of CVT, which is really important, right? Uh, CVT is also known as CVST. I don't actually think we said that earlier so (laughs) lots of acronyms (laughs) yeah so the main treatment for cvst is actually blood thinners and in some very rare cases you can actually do a surgical intervention where they go in to actually remove the clot but most patients are actually going to be put onto blood thinners when they're admitted with cvst This is really good news to hear because when I first was introduced or when I was first learning this topic, I was like, oh man, this sounds really scary. Like, I hope there's some sort of treatment. So it's reassuring to know that there are uh, therapies available to treat this condition. And so it makes me think about the prognosis of this condition. So obviously, we're going to share that with you. So for a very long time, Having CVST was pretty much like a death sentence. It used to be pretty bad, standing at about 50%. But nowadays, it's really decreased a lot, which is so reassuring. So for example, the mortality is at about 5% if it's detected very early and treatment can be rapidly offered. So another reason why the mortality rate is quite low is also like nowadays, we just have better clinical understanding of the condition. And one of the things we didn't really talk about in detail is that part of the diagnosis also depends on using like neuroimaging techniques such as CT scans and MRI scans. So that really helps to confirm diagnosis more efficiently. And of course, there's improved therapies to treat these conditions. So all of this really has led to significantly reducing the mortality when someone experiences with CVST. There was one study that kind of did like a long sort of follow-up with these types of patients. So at about the 16-month mark, they've noted that about 8% of people had died from CVST. But keep in mind that uh, most patients that that present with CVST often have at least like one risk factor. So for example, you know, they could have potentially passed away from other causes such as cancer. And then something that's really reassuring is that about 80% of patients will recover completely. So while 80% of patients recover completely, there might be a small subset of people who experience like sort of lingering residual symptoms. So 
patients may experience headaches, perhaps they might have some motor deficits or speech deficits, and they might even experience some visual or uh, cognitive changes that would persist. Yeah, but I guess 80% will still go on to recover completely, Mm -hmm. which is actually a lot higher than I would have actually thought originally thinking about the um, just like the pathophysiology and like the location, right? Because anything that concerns the brain can always be a little bit daunting when you first look at it. So that was a bit reassuring to know. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised too. Like I thought the mortality rate would be higher just because it's like it's all over the media. And so I think even for for us, like for me particularly, like as much as we want to try to be objective, you can't help but associate the severity of a disease with the amount of times you see it in the media and the amount of times you're exposed to it through news sources. So that's one of the reasons why I think we really want to do this episode and kind of set the stage. And another reason why we're kind of breaking it down as well is because we know that the information for the AstraZeneca vaccine is is still developing. So we're hopeful that by the time we release that episode, we'll have a way better understanding of what the landscape looks like for this type of vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Because we really want to make sure that we try to give the best overview possible. And also, in order to do that... It's just really important that you have a good understanding of the condition and like who's normally at risk because those things uh, will just naturally help you to have a better understanding of the of the association with the vaccine. So we are really excited for that uh, episode coming up. Yeah. I really hope you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, we want to thank you for tuning in as always. If you like what you heard, it'll be really cool if you could share this with your friends and family. And you know what would be even cooler? If you gave us a follow or slid into our DMs um, or even rated us on Apple Podcasts because right now we only have uh, six ratings. So if you have an iPhone, we'd love to have your rating. I love the uh, directness of your messaging. Um, and of course, <laughs> yes, shameless. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about us, you can always find us on our various social media platforms. Just type at Health Animated. Thanks so much and bye Bye for for now. now.